You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. We'll also find a link to send me a message and some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece that's written by Josmar Trujillo and is published at fair.org. The Thin Blue Lies Behind Crime Wave Hype The stories were horrible. A woman tied up and fatally shot in her own apartment. Her neighbor was killed in his apartment two days later in the same way. In another tragic episode, a young teenager was killed in a horrendous machete attack in the Bronx that made national headlines. The New York Post reported on a violent stretch of seven hours where 16 people were shot, one fatally, in 10 separate incidents. Quote, Gunfire explodes over seven bloody hours in NYC. There were almost 300 reported murders in New York City that year, almost one per day. There were over 20,000 reported felony assaults, about 55 per day, and more than 12,000 robberies, 35 on an average day. The year was 2018. And it was the safest year in New York City's recorded history. In a city of over 8 million residents, crime, even in the safest times, will always be a headline. Fast forward to 2021, as the city and nation begin to climb out of a pandemic that saw mass economic and social fallout, to say nothing of the lives lost. A historic, once-in-a-lifetime worldwide event destabilized the lives of countless people and also led to an undeniable rise in shootings and homicide across the country. However, right-leaning media have used the uptick in certain crime categories to weaponize a counter-narrative to social justice movements, one that argues we need more cops and law enforcement to save our cities. The narrative isn't a new one, and it certainly doesn't seem to be a genuine one. Local conservative tabloids like The Post and the New York Daily News have for years tried to stir fear of a city overrun by crime. As we've pointed out at FAIR, the local tabloids were apocalyptic in their predictions for the city when stop and frisk, a dragnet policing tactic, was ruled unconstitutional in its application by the NYPD. These papers have supported controversial police tactics like broken windows, a crackdown on minor offenses in poor communities, no matter the costs on vulnerable populations. The Post, which has been sounding the alarm bell since the Democrat Bill de Blasio took office in 2014, has operated much like a media outlet that wants crime to increase. It seems to have an ideological drive to frame the city the way the police unions in the 1970s once did, as, quote, Fear City. The cartoonishly predictable newspaper's pro-police bias is well documented. Their fascination with squeegee workers, people that go up to cars to clean windshields for tips, for example, is in itself a master class in hyping a moral panic for a larger public policy goal. In 2014, Post headlines railed against squeegee workers making a, quote, comeback. In 2020, before COVID, the Post editorial board was arguing that with squeegee workers back, the bad old days can't be far behind, only to then run a story declaring that the pandemic gives way to return of NYC's infamous squeegee men. 
Unable to decide whether squeegee workers are now back or had already returned or perhaps never really left at all, the Post reporting was never anything less than a naked attempt to signal a shadowy side of Gotham that is perpetually lurking around the figurative corner. With certain categories of city crime increasing from the previous year, media fear-mongering has hit the ground running. In the city, tabloid and television media have tried to explain crime increases, often described as crime waves, primarily in two ways. One, as a result of police reforms, notably New York State's passage of legislation, aimed to modestly reduce the use of cash bail, reforms that were watered down amid right-wing scare tactics, and secondly, to a defunding of police as some municipalities have reduced official police spending. Quoting controversial former police commissioner William Bratton, the Post made both arguments, claiming that the city, state, city and state lawmakers who make and maintain laws to make crime, well, illegal, quote, went too far to aid criminals. Data, however, doesn't back the assertion that bail reform has led to crime increases. The Center for Court Innovation found, quote, no evidence to support the claim that bail reform was behind a spike in gun violence. In a more recent publication, the New York City-based nonprofit that works closely with the state's court system, not exactly a radical anti-law enforcement outfit, also found that more people have been in pretrial detention despite what the mayor and police commissioner were telling the public. Quote, Beginning in May 2020, and increasingly throughout the summer as some New York City public officials made unsupported claims linking bail reform to a spike in gun violence, judges reverted to setting bail more often. Combined with the effect of the July 2020 amendments to the original legislation, which made more cases again eligible for bail, this contributed to a steady, months-long rise in the number of people in jail awaiting trial. What about defunding the police? Since those three magic words were seen on protest signs of George Floyd demonstrations last year and become the fascination of right-wing pundits and even establishment Democrats, some have claimed that not only have the police been defunded, but that defunding is to blame for increases in violence. The New Republic did a rather succinct job last month of bursting that bubble, showcasing the National Fraternal Order of Police's Twitter graphic of, quote, skyrocketing murder rates, which claimed elected leaders in cities like New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, quote, turned the keys over to the defund the police mob. The Fraternal Order of Police, the New Republic's Matt Ford pointed out, actually, quote, took care not to link the rise in homicides explicitly to actual material declines in police budgets, that's because some cities did not actually defund the police in any meaningful way. In other words, the very premise that reducing even moderately police spending caused a crime increase was flawed because the asserted cause didn't really happen in some cities. In fact, that's the case in New York City, a city that conservatives have breathlessly complained defunded the police. New York did reshuffle some school police spending, However, the much-hyped decrease in the police budget by $1 billion annually was found by an independent budget watchdog to be only about a third of that. Any of the so-called cuts wouldn't figure into the policing puzzle because increases in shootings began early last summer before the defunded budget would have even been felt in the police department. In fact, the city saw crime increases as its police department was still far and away the largest and most expensive urban police department in the history of mankind. Further undermining the supposed causal relationship between defunding police and increases in crime is the fact that several cities saw increases in violent crime even as they increased police spending. While local media has been increasingly reporting about crime for more than a year, national outlets have also piled on. Fox News host Laura Ingraham ranted against activists in Minneapolis recently, quote, Now a year after the ruinous deadly riots that ripped apart America, we see the corrupt poisonous fruits of BLM's work. The show framed as Ingraham's analysis of, the, of, quote, the radicals behind America's crime wave, also included an interview with right-wing pundit Heather McDonald, 
who was promoting a crime wave six years ago, when there was no crime wave. McDonald's visceral hatred of the Black Lives Matter movement led her to complain to Ingraham that, quote, Thanks to this phony racist attack on law enforcement, black lives are the ones that are lost. McDonald, who is frequent contributor to the Post, the Wall Street Journal, and City Journal, has also claimed that, quote, No, the cops didn't murder Sean Bell. After cops murdered Sean Bell. So you have to take what she says with several mountains of salt. Attempts to tie violent crime to the racial justice movement has been an ongoing theme for the right since Black Lives Matter entered mainstream national discourse. McDonald's initial attempt to do so was with the conservative fairy tale known as the, quote, Ferguson Effect back in 2015, when several media outlets, including the New York Times, opened their pages for her to argue that the vitriol of protesters and police critics led to cops not being proactive enough to stop crime. Columbia University professor Bernard Harcourt, a critical theorist who countered the broken windows theory of policing and also debunked McDonald's Ferguson effect fiction, notes the historical parallels, quote, the attacks on the movement to defund policing or reform bail come straight out of the conservative playbook. It's the same script from the 1960s and the reactionary response to the civil rights movement. Harcourt notes conservatives see easy political opportunities from high crime or increases in crime. Quote, it's what turned crime into a national priority with Goldwater and Nixon. New York City, where our crime increases notably in reported shootings and murders, still only result in a fraction of city crime levels in the early 1990s, has experienced this before. Former Mayor Rudy Giuliani was elected twice on a law and order platform that seized on fear of crime and laid the groundwork for decades of mass arrests and stops of mostly black and Latino New Yorkers. After his election, in a sort of inverse of what is happening today, Giuliani took credit for declines in crime in the 1990s that began a year before Giuliani became mayor and were part of a nationwide crime decrease. Quote, the same politicization of crime happened in the 1990s with broken windows policing. Each time, it's just manipulation to score a political point, Harcourt reminds me. The crime decrease benefited not only Giuliani and law and order Republican politics, it also gave police leaders like William Bratton, Giuliani's commissioner, political power by defining them as saviors of the city. However, more than a quarter century later, there is no consensus of what caused that crime decline. Similarly, the causes of this current crime increase probably won't be clear for a long time. Although the pandemic's destabilizing effects on society are very likely a culprit, so the voices that claim to immediately know the causes are saying so based on predetermined agenda. Quote, if there are national trends in crime and strong variations in policing across jurisdictions, our court notes, it's likely that police strategy has little to do with those trends. And that applies when crime is going down as well as when it is going up. The media, unfortunately, tend to gravitate to quick assessments rather than correct ones. As such, the industry's tendency to rely on police for answers, which they habitually do in everyday crime blotter journalism, subtly works to center police expertise and therefore power. From the hyping of crime statistics to push a predetermined agenda of more police and more control of society, we move over to Maine to take a look at their steps to actually foster more personal privacy rights. This piece is published at commondreams.org and is written by Brett Wilkins. Civil liberties advocates on Wednesday cheered as Maine enacted what that state's ACLU chapter called, quote, the country's strongest statewide facial recognition law. The new law, which sailed unanimously through both chambers of the state legislature and was passed without any action from Democratic Governor Janet Mills, bans the use of facial recognition technology by most state agencies and for the purpose of surveillance. 
The legislation contains exceptions for the investigation of serious crime, the identification of deceased, missing, or endangered persons, and other limited purposes. When the law goes into effect this October, it will prohibit the use of facial surveillance in schools. It will also ban direct access to facial recognition technology by law enforcement officials, who will have to request such access via the FBI and the main Bureau of Motor Vehicles in the narrow purview permitted by the legislation. Quote, Maine is at the forefront of a national movement to preserve civil rights and liberties in the digital age, says Allison Bea the executive director of the ACLU of Maine, which helped craft the legislation. Democracy is stronger and communities are safer when we have clear rules and accountability for how governments use new and emerging technologies, added Bea. The bill's sponsor, State Representative Grayson Luckner, a Portland Democrat, called the new law, quote, a huge victory for privacy rights and civil liberties in Maine. It's also a victory for bipartisanship and cooperation, Luckner added. I hope that Maine can provide an example to other states that want to rein in the government's ability to use facial recognition and other invasive biometric technologies. The ACLU of Maine said the state's new law, quote, stands in sharp contrast to the only other statewide approach to regulating face recognition in the United States, a law passed in Washington State in 2020. Quote, that law, which was backed by Microsoft, authorizes police across the state to use facial recognition technology to conduct mass surveillance of people's public movements, habits, and associations, the group added. Starting with San Francisco in 2019, more than a dozen U.S. municipalities from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, have also passed facial recognition bans. There are no federal rules restricting law enforcement use of facial recognition. This is one really important piece of the puzzle, restricting government officials and government entities from conducting facial recognition surveillance. Because as we've seen, and I've discussed in prior episodes, uh, it can lead to false accusations and false imprisonments due to inaccurate identification of people. And even if it was 100% accurate, blanket surveillance of people who are not committing crimes it should be outlawed, and in some cases is outlawed, and that should extend to facial recognition. The, the other challenge with facial recognition is merely limiting government entities, um, police, and other official government uh, organizations from conducting facial recognition surveillance does not necessarily prevent them from using facial recognition surveillance because it exempts corporations from doing the same. So therefore, potentially, any store you walk into, any public place you walk into, could be using facial recognition scanning and creating a massive database. Ring doorbell as an example. Uh, videos, front yards of whomever installs it on their, you know, at their door and has contracts with police departments to share information. Um, so the police don't necessarily have to conduct and control the capture of that surveillance as long as they have access to that surveillance and therein lies the second layer of challenge and opportunity for activists fighting the blanket surveillance of u.s citizens next up we have a piece published at truthout.org written by sharon Zhang. Representative Cory Bush has introduced a bill that aims to transform public safety in the U.S. by transitioning away from policing and towards responses that aren't focused on violence, incarceration, and criminalization. The People's Response Act would create a public safety division within the Department of Health and Human Services in order to help guide research and run grant programs for health-centered investments in public safety, according to a press release on the bill. It would launch a federal first responders unit 
and provide funding to support state and local governments in transitioning away from punitive emergency responses. The People's Response Act will transform public safety into a system of care rather than criminalization, healing rather than incarceration, and prevention rather than policing, said Bush in a statement. We are safer when our communities are well-funded, our people are healthy and housed, and our children have nutritious meals, excellent schools, and green spaces to play in. The proposal, if passed, could mark the first major federal step towards police abolition, which Bush has advocated for. As abolitionist Mariam Kaba argues in her recent book, We Do This Till We Free Us, Funding kinder approaches to emergencies like social programs and experts instead of the police is a crucial step towards the ultimate goal of police and prison abolition. Though Bush's bill, supported by Representatives Ayanna Presley, Jan Schakowsky, and Congressional Progressive Caucus leader Pramila Jayapal, doesn't call for defunding police departments, it could create a more holistic approach to public safety. The lawmakers proposed creating a $2.5 billion grant to fund the hiring of thousands of first responders who specialize in mental health, social work, and substance use, among other specialties, to provide an emergency response system aimed at helping, not punishing, people in crisis. As Bush points out, emergency calls are often more dangerous than helpful for the public, especially for black and brown communities. Quote, when people in crisis need help, calling 911 too often becomes a death sentence, she said on Twitter. In a video advocating for the bill, Bush points to the case of Atatiana Jefferson, who was murdered by a police officer during what was supposed to be a standard welfare check. Jefferson, a black woman, was in her home studying when former Fort Worth police officer Aaron Dean shot her through a window. The bill comes at a time when activists have drawn attention to many cases like Jefferson's, where a black person has been killed by police, often seemingly just for existing. Protests for the movement for black lives that swept the country over the past year often called for police abolition, arguing that an institution focused on perpetuating criminalization and violence shouldn't exist. Politicians on both sides of the aisle often say in response to growing calls for abolition, and in response to a growing overdose crisis, the police need more funding to combat these issues. But policing often does little to help communities and people in crisis, and abolitionists argue that police belong to an institution that can't be reformed. Quote, For too long, our flawed approach to public safety has centered criminalization, surveillance, and incarceration rather than care, justice, and healing, said Presley in a statement. Our bill would help change that by directing the federal government to take a health-centered approach to public safety and investing in trauma-informed, community-based responses that will truly keep people safe. Though the bill could represent a step towards abolition, it also gives power to HHS, a government agency that abolitionists have been skeptical of funding. Under Donald Trump, HHS institutionalized anti-LGBTQ oppression and helped to sabotage the U.S.'s COVID response. Still, though it faces long odds of passing, the People's Response Act could represent a crucial shift towards a public safety approach focused on healing and away from the corrupt system of policing. And sticking with actions uh, happening in the Congress, this piece is back from June 28th, so some things may have changed since it was uh, published, but this is written by Jake Johnson and is published at commondreams.org. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, chair of the Senate Budget Committee, said Sunday that he will not support the bipartisan infrastructure plan that Biden White House endorsed last week if it is not paired with a broader legislative package containing major investments in climate action and other progressive priorities. Quote, let me be clear. There will not be a bipartisan infrastructure deal without a reconciliation bill that substantially improves the lives of working families and combats the existential threat of climate change, Sanders tweeted. No reconciliation bill, no deal. We need transformative change now. 
Sanders' comments came shortly after President Joe Biden walked back earlier remarks indicating he would not sign the bipartisan infrastructure legislation if it reached his desk without a reconciliation package that includes elements of his American Families Plan, a $1.8 trillion safety net proposal that Republicans unanimously oppose. Biden's comments last week characterizing the bipartisan infrastructure bill and a reconciliation package as components of a tandem deal that cannot be separated set off a firestorm of GOP outrage, with Republicans threatening to pull their support from the bipartisan measure without clarification from the White House. The president soon obliged, releasing a statement Saturday in which he said he was not issuing a veto threat against the $579 billion bipartisan deal, which progressives have criticized for proposing inadequate spending and pay-fors that could lead to the privatization of public assets and cuts to unemployment insurance. Quote, I intend to work hard to get both of them passed because our country needs both, and I ran a winning campaign for president that promised to deliver on both, Biden said, referring to the bipartisan bill and the reconciliation package. No one should be surprised that this is precisely what I am doing. The size and scope of the reconciliation package, so named because of the arcane budget process Democrats will attempt to use to pass it without Republican support, remain unclear as senators and House members haggle over the details in public and behind closed doors. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi vowed last week that her chamber will not take up the bipartisan infrastructure measure until the Senate also passes a reconciliation bill. Sanders, who as chair of the Senate's budget panel, has significant influence over the reconciliation process, is reportedly working to assemble a $6 trillion reconciliation package that would include an expansion of Medicare and investments in green energy, among other proposals. In a tweet on Sunday, Sanders staff director Warren Gunnels outlined progressive priorities for the emerging legislation. No child care, no deal. No universal pre-K, no deal. No paid family medical leave, no deal. No child tax credit extension, no deal. No expanding Medicare, no deal. No home health care, no deal. No affordable housing, no deal. No combating climate change, no deal. No taxing the 1%, no deal. Representative Jamal Bowman, a freshman lawmaker, joined Sanders on Sunday in expressing his opposition to moving ahead with a bipartisan infrastructure package without simultaneously advancing a sweeping reconciliation bill that invests in green energy and other key areas that the bipartisan deal fails to address. Quote, We have to go big on infrastructure. We have to go big on climate. We have to go big on racial equity and racial justice, Bowman said in an appearance on MSNBC Sunday morning. The New York Democrat is expected to join hundreds of activists with the youth-led Sunrise Movement for a protest in front of the White House on Monday. Quote, That's fine if we want to have a bipartisan agreement, Bowman said Sunday, but it has to be coupled with an agreement that's going to be very big, that Republicans probably are not going to agree to, but at this moment... Democrats were sent to Washington to do the work of the American people. That's our job. We have to push very aggressively and boldly to get that done. From Quebec to Argentina, I see soldiers in the streets. A million angry marchers, a final state of siege. From Peru to South Korea, there comes a time for change. But in the mighty halls of power, the fight has been arranged. In the secret labs in Washington, they said we needed war. Weapons of mass destruction was what they were looking for. But they couldn't find those weapons because they made them up. So they claimed liberation and dropped 10,000 
about land It was an imperialistic step with the goal of world command And it was not the first and it won't be the last These wars will keep exploding until all the governments collapse Structural adjustment to the death of Rachel Corey And the despots in Colombia is all the same old story Capitalism's advancement, master versus slave A constant fight for profit just to fill another grave Now see a world where justice is as foreign as the past Where the poor are stuck in prisons in a race to come and last And the murky depths of oppression are deeper than the sea And freedom has been varied by our insecurity And billionaires will sit high up and watch the fighting flare As picoteros and peasants struggle just to get their share And the oppressors of the world watch the wars go on and on But the poor will not stop rising until all their power's gone And that was Ryan Harvey with the song Until All Their Power Is Gone From the album Iraq, Songs of Life and Death Speaking of death Here's a piece from the Daily Beast, written by Spencer Ackerman. Donald Rumsfeld, killer of 400,000 people, dies peacefully. Do not mourn the defense secretary. Mourn his victims. There were nearly too many to tally, but his Pentagon refused to count anyway. The only thing tragic about the death of Donald Rumsfeld is that it didn't occur in an Iraqi prison. Yet that was foreordained, considering how throughout his life, inside the precincts of American national security, Rumsfeld escaped the consequences of decisions he made that ensured a violent, frightening end for hundreds of thousands of people. An actuarial table of the deaths for which Donald Rumsfeld is responsible is difficult to assemble. In part, that's a consequence of his policy as Defense Secretary from 2001 to 2006 not to compile or release body counts, a PR strategy learned after disclosing the toll's eroded support for the Vietnam War. As a final obliteration, we cannot know, let alone name, all the dead. But in 2018, Brown University Costs of War Project put together something that serves as the basis for an estimate. According to Netta C. Crawford, Boston University's political science department chair and one of the directors of the Cost of War Project, the Afghanistan war to that point claimed about 147,000 lives to include 38,480 civilians, 58,596 Afghan soldiers and police, about as many American troops as died in Vietnam, and 2,401 U.S. service members. Rumsfeld was hardly the only person in the Bush administration responsible for the Afghanistan war. But in December 2001, under attack in Kandahar, where it had retreated from the advance of U.S. and Northern Alliance forces, the Taliban sought to broker a surrender, one acceptable to the U.S.-installed Afghan leader Hamid Karzai. At the Pentagon, Donald Rumsfeld refused, quote, I do not think there will be a negotiated end to the situation that's unacceptable to the United States, he said. That statement reaped a 20-year war, making it fair to say that the subsequent deaths are on his head, even while acknowledging that Rumsfeld was hardly the only architect of the conflict. Crawford in 2018 also tallied between 267,792 and 295,170 deaths to that point in Iraq. That is almost certainly a severe undercount, and it includes between a very conservatively estimated 182,000 to 204,000 civilians, over 41,000 Iraqi soldiers and police, and 4,550 U.S. service members. As one of the driving forces behind the invasion in the driving force 
behind the occupation. Rumsfeld is in an elite category of responsibility for these deaths, alongside his protege, Dick Cheney, and the president they served, George W. Bush. Rumsfeld's depredations, short of the wars he, of choice he oversaw, and yes, responding to 9-11 with war in Afghanistan was no less a choice than the unprovoked war of aggression in Iraq, were no less severe. His indifference to the suffering of others was hardly unique among American policymakers after 9-11, but his blitheness about it underscored the cruel essence of the enterprise. When passed a sheet of paper that, in bureaucratic language, pitched a torture technique of forcing men held captive at Guantanamo Bay to stand for hours on end, Rumsfeld scribbled a shrug on it, quote, I stand for eight to ten hours a day. Months earlier, when Rumsfeld was banking on using U.S. military to invade Iraq, a reporter asked about using U.S. forces to provide security for rebuilding Afghanistan at a moment before Taliban resistance coalesced. Ah, peacekeeping, he sneered in return, explaining that such tasks were beneath U.S. forces. But to those forces for whom he was responsible, he was no less indifferent. In Kuwait, in December 2004, National Guardsmen preparing for deployment confronted Rumsfeld in the hope of enlisting his help with a dire circumstance. They were scrounging through scrap heaps for metal to weld onto their insufficiently armored vehicles so that the RPGs they were sure to encounter wouldn't kill them. Rumsfeld let it be known that the war mattered, not the warfighter. Quote, You go to war with the army you've got, not the army you might want or wish to have, at a later time, he replied. If Rumsfeld was indignant at the guardsmen's questions, it reflected the unreality he inhabited and the lies he told as easily as he breathed. He wrapped himself in a superficial understanding of epistemology. Quote, there are known knowns, there are things that we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns, etc. That a compliant press treated as sagacity, he wore a mask of assuredness, a con man's trick, as he said things that bore no resemblance to the truth, such as his September 2002 insistence that he possessed, quote, bulletproof evidence of a non-existence alliance between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. As resistance in Iraq coalesced in summer 2003, Rumsfeld said it couldn't be, quote, anything like a guerrilla war or an organized resistance even as a reporter quoted U.S. military doctrine explaining why it was. He insisted, quote, I don't do quagmires, when quagmires were all he did. He had reason to suspect he would get away with it. Manipulating the media was, to Rumsfeld, a known known, since reporters loved Rumsfeld before they hated him. U.S. News and World Report put a grinning Rumsfeld on the cover above the headline, Rum Punch. A Secretary of War unlike any other. You got a problem with that? Vanity Fair dispatched Annie Leibowitz to photograph him among Bush's war cabinet. People magazine called him the sexiest cabinet member in 2002. A typical thumbsucker piece, this one in the Los Angeles Times of August 17, 2003, began with the falsity that, quote, Donald H. Rumsfeld has won two wars and won them his way. The conservative, yeah, his way is losing them. The conservative press reflected the subtext, quote, the stud was what National Review called the septuagenarian Rumsfeld as it depicted him in a come-hither pose. The scale of death Rumsfeld and Bush and Cheney and so on is responsible for does not even make him the bloodiest American of his era. That would be Henry Kissinger, whom the historian Greg Grandin estimates is responsible for between three and four million dead. But American elites embrace Kissinger, and more recently, Bush, in a way they never would embrace, the post-Iraq Rumsfeld. Kissinger, after all, never raised sufficient ire among general officers to make his continued tenure impossible, as Rumsfeld experienced in the spring of 2006, quote, General's Revolt that presaged his November 2006 downfall. 
but getting rid of Rumsfeld only compounded the tragedy of his works rather than alleviating them. For the generals who came for Rumsfeld did not come for his wars. They came to save the wars from Rumsfeld, prolonging their agony and futility with a convenient alibi that they could be won if only a change atop the Pentagon came. With U.S. troops still in Iraq and President Biden adding caveat after caveat to his Afghanistan withdrawal, removing Donald Rumsfeld from the wars only permitted them to continue to this day. Rumsfeld never faced any accountability for what he did, only political eclipse, and wrote an inevitable memoir about why he was right and what he did was good. Starting around two years after Bush accepted Rumsfeld's resignation, I would walk up Connecticut Avenue northwest each morning to my newsroom near the so-called Hinkley Hilton. Frequently, I would see a wizened figure walking south from his Colorama mansion down Connecticut as I headed north. He carried a metal cane, but he didn't lean on it. He held it in each hand, parallel to the ground, as if he were walking a tightrope. His teeth would be bared as he drew back his lips in the facsimile of a grin so familiar from his post-9-11 press conferences. It was all weird, but I never approached him as he was accompanied by a bodyguard who had flashed me the keep-walking-pal expression. For the potency and vigor Rumsfeld wanted to project, he moved delicately, an elderly man. He walked starting with his hips, swaying one foot outward before sweeping the other one forward, slow half-moons of motion as he carefully descended the hill north of DuPont Circle. How frail was this man who can lay claim to the deaths of at least 415,000 people, and how bitter it is that, unlike them, his name will be remembered, even in infamy. And while Rumsfeld was a uh, very important cog in the war machine machine during his tenure, maybe the, the king cog, as it were, uh, at his time there, and had the responsibility, largely the responsibility, of course, spread among others, of those hundreds of thousands of deaths perpetrated by the United States for no valid reasons, no strategic reasons, other than pushing our hegemony and pushing our, uh, our control of other nations around the world as empires are wont to do, um, the machine continues to rattle on, un undeterred by one person's coming and going and moves forward, even under new leadership. I mean, between Trump and Biden, the Pentagon has become what I consider a wholly owned subsidiary of Raytheon. It's uh, past two leaders, or I should say it's previous and current leader, though I think there was probably someone in between. Briefly, we're both from Raytheon. One had previously served, Trump's, Trump's uh, leader of the Department of Defense had previously served as a uh, PR person for Raytheon, while Biden's leader of the defense served on Raytheon's board of directors. Here's a story from Mandy Smithberger and William Hartung, published at CommonDreams.org. America's nearly $1.3 trillion national security budget isn't making us any safer. President Biden's first Pentagon budget, released late last month, is staggering by any reasonable standard. At more than $750 billion for the Defense Department and related work on nuclear weapons at the Department of Energy. It represents one of the highest levels of spending since World War II, far higher than the peaks of the Korean or Vietnam Wars or President Ronald Reagan's military buildup of the 1980s, and roughly three times what China spends on its military. Developments of the past year and a half, an ongoing pandemic and intensifying mega-drought, white supremacy activities, and racial and economic injustice among them should have underscored that the greatest threats to American lives are anything but military in nature. But no matter, the Biden administration has decided to double down on military spending as the primary pillar 
of what still passes for American security policy. And don't be fooled that striking Pentagon budget figure either. This year's funding request suggests that the total national security budget will come closer to a breathtaking $1.3 trillion. That mind-boggling figure underscores just how misguided Washington's current security, a word that should increasingly be put in quotation marks, policies really are. No less concerning was the new administration's decision to go full speed ahead on long-standing Pentagon plans to build a new generation of nuclear-armed bombers, submarines, and missiles, including, of course, new nuclear warheads to go with them, at a cost of at least $1.7 trillion over the next three decades. The Trump administration added to that plan projects like new submarine-launched nuclear-armed cruise missile, all of which is fully funded in Biden's first budget. It hardly matters that a far smaller arsenal would be more than adequate to dissuade any country from launching a nuclear attack on the United States or its allies. A rare glimmer of hope came in a recent internal memo from the Navy, suggesting that it may ultimately scrap Trump's sea-launch cruise missile in next year's budget submission, but that proposal is already facing intense pushback from nuclear weapons boosters in Congress. In all, Biden's first budget is a major win for key players in the nuclear industrial complex, like Northrop Grumman, the prime contractor on the new nuclear bomber and a new intercontinental ballistic missile, ICBM, General Dynamics, the maker of the new ballistic missile submarine, Lockheed Martin, which produces sea-launched ballistic missiles, SLBMs, and firms like Honeywell, that oversee key elements in the Department of Energy's nuclear warhead complex. The Biden budget does retire some older generation weapons. The only reason, however, is to fund even more expensive new systems, like hypersonic weapons and ones embedded with artificial intelligence, all with the goal of supposedly putting the United States in a position to win a war with China, if anyone could win such a war. China's military buildup remains, in fact, largely defensive, so ramping up Pentagon spending supposedly in response represents both bad strategy and bad budgeting. If, sooner or later, cooler heads don't prevail, the obsession with China that's gripped the White House, the Pentagon, and key members of Congress could keep Pentagon budgets high for decades to come. In reality, the principal challenges posed by China are diplomatic and economic, not military, and seeking militarized answers to them will also will only spark a new Cold War and a risky arms race that could make a superpower nuclear conflict more likely. While there's much to criticize in China's policies, from its crackdown on the democracy movement in Hong Kong to its ethnic cleansing and severe repression of its Uyghur population, in basic military capabilities, it doesn't come faintly close to the United States, nor will it anytime soon. Washington's military buildup, however, could undermine the biggest opportunity in U.S.-China relations, finding a way to cooperate on issues like climate change that threaten the future of the planet. As noted, the three-quarters of a trillion dollars the United States spends on the Pentagon budget is just a portion of a much larger figure for the full range of activities of the national security state. Let's look category by category, and what the Biden budget proposes to spend on this broader set of activities. The Pentagon's Base Budget The Pentagon's proposed base budget, which in past years has included routine spending for fighting ongoing conflicts, was $715 billion for fiscal year 2022, $10 billion more than last year's request. Despite complaints to the contrary by advocates of even higher Pentagon spending, that rep represents no small addition. It's larger, for instance, than the entire budget of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. No question about it, the Pentagon remains by a long shot the agency with the largest discretionary budget. One piece of good news is that this year's request marks the end of the Overseas Contingency Operations OCO account. That slush fund was used to finance the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, 
but also included tens of billions of dollars for pet Pentagon projects that had nothing to do with current conflicts. While off-budget emergency spending has typically only been used in the initial years of a conflict, OCO became a tool to evade caps on the Pentagon's regular budget imposed by the Budget Control Act of 2011. That legislation has now expired, and the Biden administration has heeded the advice of good government and taxpayer advocacy groups by eliminating the slush fund entirely. Unfortunately, its latest budget request still includes $42.1 billion for direct and indirect war spending costs, which means that OCO or not, there will be no net reduction in spending. Still, the end of that fund marks a small but potentially significant step towards greater accountability and transparency in the Pentagon budget. Moreover, congressional leaders are urging the Biden administration to seize savings from the ongoing Afghan withdrawal to sooner or later reduce the Pentagon's top line. As for what's in the base budget, there are a number of particularly troubling proposed expenditures that warrant attention and congressional pushback. Spending on the Pentagon's new intercontinental ballistic missile, known formally as the ground-based strategic deterrent, has nearly doubled in the new proposal from $1.4 billion to $2.6 billion. This may seem like small change in such a budget, but it's just a down payment on a system that could, in the end, cost more than $100 billion to procure and another $164 billion to operate over its lifetime. More importantly, as former Secretary of Defense William Perry noted, ICBMs are, quote, some of the most dangerous weapons in the world, because the President would have only a matter of minutes to decide whether to launch them upon a warning of an attack, greatly increasing the risk of an accidental nuclear war based on a false alarm. In short, the new ICBM is not just costly, but exceedingly dangerous for the health of humanity. The Biden budget should have eliminated it, not provided more funding for it. Another eye-opener is a decision to spend more than $12 billion on the F-35 combat aircraft, a troubled, immensely expensive weapons system whose technical flaws suggest that it may never be fully ready for combat. Such knowledge should, of course, have resulted in a decision to at least pause production on the plane until testing is complete. House Armed Services Committee Chair Adam Smith has stated that he's tired of the pouring money down the F-35, quote, rat hole, while the Air Force's top officer, General Charles Brown, has compared it to a Ferrari that, quote, you don't drive to work every day, but only drive it out on Sundays. Oh, good, let's conduct all, all our wars only on Sundays. Actually, let's just stop conducting wars. Then we won't need it at all. Consider that an embarrassing admission for a plane once publicized as a future low-cost bulwark for the U.S. combat aircraft fleet. Whether the Air Force, Navy, and Marines, the three services that utilize variants of the F-35, will stay the course and buy more than 2,400 of these aircraft remains to be seen. Count on one thing, though. The F-35 lobby, including Special F-35 Caucus in the House of Representatives, and the Machinist Union, whose workers build the planes, will fight tooth and nail to keep the program fully funded, regardless of whether or not it serves our national security needs. And keep in mind that the F-35 is only one of many legacies of failed Pentagon modernization efforts. Even if the Pentagon were to acquire its new systems without delays or cost overruns, something rare indeed, its expensive spending plans have already earned this decade the moniker of the terrible 20s. Worse yet, there's a distinct possibility that Congress will push that budget even higher in response to wish lists being circulated by each of the military services. Items on them that have yet to make it into the Biden Pentagon budget include things like, surprise, more F-35s. The Army's wish list even includes systems it claimed it needed to cut. That the services are even allowed to make such requests to Congress is symbolic of a breakdown in budgetary discipline of the highest order. The base budget also includes mandatory spending for items like military retirement. This year's request 
adds $12.8 billion to the Pentagon's tab. Running tally? $727.9 billion. The nuclear budget. It would be reasonable for you to assume that the Department of Energy's budget would primarily be devoted to developing new energy sources and combating climate change, but that assumption would, sadly enough, be wildly off the mark. In fact, more than half of the department's budget goes to support the National Nuclear Security Administration, NNSA, which manages the country's nuclear weapons program. The NNSA does work on nuclear warheads at eight major locations. California, Missouri, Nevada, New Mexico, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Texas. Across the country, along with subsidiary facilities in several additional states. NNSA's proposed fiscal year 2022 budget for nuclear weapons activities is $15.5 billion, part of a budget for atomic energy-related projects of $29.9 billion. The NNSA is notorious for poor management of major projects. It has routinely been behind schedule and over cost to the tune of $28 billion in the past two decades. Its future plans seem destined to hit the pocketbook of the American taxpayers significantly, with projected long-term spending on nuclear weapons activities rising by a proposed $113 billion in a single year. Nuclear budget, $29.9 billion. Running tally, $757.8 billion. Defense-related activities. This is a catch-all, totaling $10.5 billion in the fiscal year 2022 request, including the international activities of the FBI and payments to the CIA Retirement Fund, among other things. Defense-related activities budget, $10.5 billion. Running tally, $768.3 billion. The Intelligence Budget There is very little public information available about how much the nation's, count them, 17 intelligence agencies spend our tax dollars. The majority of congressional representatives don't even have staff members capable of accessing any kind of significant information on intelligence spending, a huge obstacle to the ability of Congress to oversee these agencies and their activities in any meaningful way. So far this year, there's only a top-line figure available for spending on national, but not military, intelligence activities of $62.3 billion. Most of this money is already believed to be hidden away in the Pentagon budget, so it is not added to the running tally displayed below. National Intelligence Activities Budget, $62.3 billion. The Military and Defense Department Retirement and Health Budget. The Treasury Department covers military retirement and health expenditures that should be in the Pentagon's base budget. Net spending on these two items, minus interest earned and payments into the two accounts, was a negative $9.7 billion in fiscal year 2022. Military and Defense Department Retirement and Health Cost Budget, minus $9.7 billion. Running tally, $758.6 billion. Veterans Affairs Budget the full costs of war go far beyond the expenditures contained in the Pentagon's budget, including the cost of taking care of the veterans of Americans forever wars. Over 2.7 million U.S. military personnel have cycled through war zones in this country, and hundreds of thousands of them have suffered severe physical or psychological injuries, ratcheting up the costs of veterans' care accordingly. In addition, as we emerge from the COVID-19 disaster months, the Veterans Affairs Department anticipates a bow wave of extra costs and demands for its services from veterans who deferred care during the worst of the pandemic. The total fiscal year 2022 budget request for Veterans Affairs is $284.5 billion. Veterans Affairs budget, $284.5 billion, running tally. $1,043.1 billion. International Affairs Budget The International Affairs Budget includes funding for the State Department and the Agency for International Development, integral parts of the U.S. national security strategy. 
Here, investments in diplomacy and economic and health activities overseas are supplemented by about $5.6 billion in military aid to other countries. The Biden administration has proposed overall international affairs funding for fiscal year 2022 at $79 billion. International affairs budget, $79 billion. Running tally, $1,122.1 billion. The Homeland Security Budget In the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the Department of Homeland Security was created by throwing together a wide range of agencies, including the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the Transportation Security Agency, the U.S. Secret Service Customs and Border Protection, and the Coast Guard. The proposed DHS budget for fiscal year 2022 is $52.2 billion, nearly one-third of which goes to the Customs and Border Protection. Homeland Security budget, $52.2 billion. Running tally, $1,174.3 billion. Interest on the debt. The national security state as outlined above is responsible for about 20% of the interest due on the U.S. debt, a total of more than $93.8 billion. Interest on the debt, $93.8 billion. Final tally. $1,268.1 billion. Are you feeling safer now? Theoretically, that nearly $1.3 trillion to be spent on national security writ large is supposed to be devoted to activities that make America and the world a safer place. That's visibly not the case when it comes to so many of the funds that will be expended in the name of national security. From taxpayer dollars thrown away on weapon systems that don't work, to those spent on unnecessary and dangerous new generation of nuclear weapons, to continuing to reinforce and extend the historically unprecedented U.S. military presence on this planet by maintaining more than 800 overseas military bases around the world. If managed properly, President Biden's initiatives on rebuilding domestic infrastructure and combating climate change would be far more central to keeping people safe than throwing more money at the Pentagon and related agencies. Unfortunately, unlike the proposed Pentagon budget, significant Green New Deal-style infrastructure funding is far less likely to be passed by a bitterly divided Congress. Washington evidently doesn't care that such investments would also be significantly more effective job creators. A shift in spending towards these and other urgent priorities like addressing the possibly the possibility of future pandemics would clearly be a far better investment in the national security than the present proposed Pentagon budget. Sadly, though, too many of America's political leaders have clearly drawn the wrong lessons from the pandemic. If this country continues to squander staggering sums on narrowly focused national security activities at a time when our greatest challenges are anything but military in nature, this country and the world will be a far less safe place in the future. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can go to youcan'tbeneutral.com and check out all the back episodes. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral, and you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of Zin. Thanks for listening. We're in a situation now where we, I think, desperately need to uh, learn something from history, because I feel that if people of the United States at that moment, when George Bush got up before the uh, microphone and, and said, you know, we must go to war, 9-11 took place, terrorist act took place, and therefore we must go to war against Afghanistan. Well, if people listening knew history, uh, they would not immediately rush as most Americans did at that point. 80% of Americans rushed to say yes, yes. Congress, of course, rushed to say yes, because that's the job of Congress, to say yes, uh, whenever the president wants to go to war. And, uh, but if people knew some history, there would not be that rush to support a war. There would not be that, 
that acceptance of the idea, oh, we're going to war uh, to fight terrorism. There would not be an acceptance of the idea, we're going to war to bring democracy uh, to Iraq, bring democracy to the whole Middle East. Uh, because if people knew some history, they would know of all those instances in the American past when presidents have come before the public and said, well, as President Polk did in 1846, we've got to go into Mexico to spread civilization to the Mexicans. Or as McKinley did in 1898, oh, we've got to go to uh, Cuba to liberate the Cubans. We're always liberating somebody. But we, we went into Cuba and we liberated the Cubans. In fact, we did. We liberated the Cubans from Spain, but not from us. And that's our record. Our record is, is sometimes liberating people from other tyrants and then imposing our will on them. So the Spanish were out of Cuba in 1898 and American corporations and American military were in Cuba and stayed there for a very long time, dictatorship after dictatorship after dictatorship supported by the United States. If people knew some of that history, if they knew the history of, of the American occupation of the Philippines, they would be very wary of an American occupation of Iraq They'd be very wary of the idea, oh, we're occupying Iraq so that we can bring democracy to Iraq. We fought a bloody war in the Philippines. We committed massacres in the Philippines. And then we occupied the Philippine Islands for 50 years. And did we bring democracy to the Philippines? We brought dictatorship after dictatorship and misery to the Filipino people, about a half a million of whom had died in the war that we waged against the Filipinos.